welcome to Chick Chat, the Baby Chick Podcast. I'm Nina Spears, the Baby Chick, your host, and today we have Betsy Hill with us. Betsy is the president of Brainware Learning Company, a company that builds learning capacity through the practical application of neuroscience. She's an experienced educator and has studied the connection between neuroscience and education. She is a former chair of the Board of Trustees at Chicago State University and teaches strategic thinking in the MBA program at Lake Forest Graduate School of Management, where she received a contribution to learning excellence award. She also received an Apri Trailblazer Award for sharing her knowledge, skills, and passion for the neuroscience of learning in classrooms around the country. Betsy is also the co-author of the recently released book, Your Child Learns Differently, Now What? Today, Betsy will be chatting with us about the benefits of building cognitive learning skills and the long-lasting effects of these skills for education and beyond. As parents, understanding how the brain learns and how our child's brain learns best can help us empower them and achieve their fullest learning potential. Let's welcome Betsy to learn more. Hi, Betsy. Thank you for joining us on our podcast, Chick Chat. We're really interested to dive into this topic of how our child's brain learns. But first, we'd love to learn a little bit about you. Okay. Well, probably the most important thing about me is I raised three boys, and they were as different as different could be. I like to say if they weren't brothers, they would never have met. (laughs) (laughs) And I am the grandmother of two granddaughters. So I had the boys, but now I get to you know, worry about pretty frilly dresses and and rainbows and unicorns and all that kind of thing. I'm sure that's an adjustment. How has that been? Oh, fantastic. You know, (laughs) being a grandmother is the best ever, ever. Oh, I love that. But from a professional point of view, I started off as a teacher a long time ago. And I taught high school foreign languages. And I loved it, but there were some parts that were very frustrating to me. And one of those was that if my, I had some students who were just, you know, it just like osmosis, they just got it. And then others that really struggled and couldn't, you know, just, and I didn't have much in my toolbox to, to help them with that. So, so that was frustrating. And and then I went off and did a lot of other things over the years, but have always been remained really interested. And when I came across this whole topic of applying neuroscience in education, it was just a revelation, and it was, and it made so much sense because it's our brains that learn; it's not some other part. And so, if we don't understand how that brain learns, it's just throwing spaghetti against the wall. You know, you just, which is what I was doing: was trying this, trying that, trying something else. And the things that worked for me were not going to work for a lot of my students. And so we, we all have cognitive strengths and weaknesses. We all learn differently and our brains process information differently. So that was the, the discovery, you know, the realization really that gave rise to, to what we do today. That is so cool that you were able to discover, you know, the whole neuroscience and apply that to learning. And how did you come to specialize in neuroscience and as it applies to education? Well, I had an opportunity to meet, I had read a book called Brain Matters, and it's by Dr. Patricia Wolf. She is, was, is, was one of the pioneers of applying neuroscience in education. And her stories are just fantastic. And I, 
she had basically been through a very similar process and realized that um, there was enough neuroscience out there that could be translated into not just pop psychology kind of stuff, because there's a lot of misinformation out there, but the kinds of things that were really solid and that educators could use and rely on. And so she trained uh, over many years, probably thousands and thousands of parents and educators and administrators around the world. And there was a group that she trained very particularly and then would get back together again every year. We call ourselves the Brainy Bunch. And so I am... (laughs) I'm a very proud member of the Brainy Bunch. (laughs) And that's really where I learned. But then you just become so hungry for it. And every every time you turn around, every time there's a new neuroscience thing that pops up in your your email, you go, oh, I get that. You know, I, I know how that kind of thing works. So. Oh, I love that. And for those of us, you know, this might be new. Can you explain to us, like, what is like a neuroeducator? What does that mean? And what is that? So it's simply someone who's an educator. So I was a teacher, certified teacher, and had um, a fair amount of experience. Today, I actually teach at the graduate school level. I teach in an MBA program. But it's an educator who's really studied and become very knowledgeable about uh, neuroscience and how it applies to education. And when our neuroeducators, the people that um, support our families and our clients and our schools are people who really understand how cognitive skills develop. So we have the, you know, cognitive skills include things like attention and memory and visual processing. So these are all the ways that information gets into our brains from the outside world. And it's what starts the learning process. So our brains learn from our experiences, from the environment. And, you know, we, we aren't always aware of it, especially when our kids are really little, because they just absorb everything that's going on and they just explode with this new knowledge. So they don't have to be taught necessarily, but there are some things that do require instruction as we get to reading and, and things like that. So it's just, it's somebody who understands how those skills relate to and how we can support students in learning and how we can strengthen those skills. And I'm just fascinated by this because, as you said, every child is different. Every child learns differently, and we all have our own strengths and weaknesses in that. And, you know, the school system really just focuses usually on one way of learning. And so hearing that there's another way to go about things is really, really cool and exciting for me. So I can't wait to dive more. But how would you describe cognitive skills to a parent? Like, how can we help our children build their cognitive skills? So we all have the ability to learn. That's what our brains do. It's just built in. We're constantly learning throughout life. You know, we we often think that, oh, maybe our brains don't do as well when we get to a certain age. And, you know, we do have, you know, our brains, the term that the neuroscientists use is called neuroplasticity or plasticity. And that just means it's like plastic, something that can bend and shape. And it just means that the brain is malleable. It means it can change. And so 
And that's just one of those words you can throw out at your next cocktail party or, you know, soccer team, <laughs> kids soccer game. Oh, I was reading about neuroplasticity. <laughs> and you know what? My brain still has neuroplasticity. And that's the, that's the really great news is that we can change. Our brains are changing constantly, much more than people really have any idea. So those cognitive skills are the, the basic processes. They're really the foundation for learning. They're what our brains do to get information in. So visual processing. So we tend to think about visual processing as just, you know, do we have 20-20 vision? But it's a whole bunch of other things. It's visual span, how much information we can take in at a glance. It's visual processing speed, how quickly we can process information. It's visual, something called visual form consistency, which means that we recognize an object you know, like my cell phone, if it's sitting underneath my coffee cup and I can't see the whole thing, I still know it's my phone or my keys are under my gloves or something like that. For kids, it's if you ever have had your child go into their bedroom to look for their backpack and they come out and they say, it's not there, I can't find it. And you go in and it's sitting in the middle of the pile of dirty clothes. I think every parent can relate to this. Yes. <laughs> I know. I can. Right. Yeah. Absolutely. So it's those kinds of things. And, and, you know, we take in all that visual information and then the back of our heads, we process it. We make sense of it. We put things in relationship. We integrate it then with auditory information so that we get, you know, our conversation and, the, and what we're doing is we're, hearing and we're seeing and we're making that one memory, one experience, one uh, one thing that makes sense. And so so that kind of sensory integration, eye-hand coordination. Um, and then, of course, there's this special group of cognitive skills that parents really need to be aware of. And most educators are familiar with this term these days, and it's called executive functions. So if you hear the term executive functions, it usually is described as how you manage yourself. And it is, executive functions do have to do with self-regulation, self-control, but it's actually more than that. It's all the ways that our minds direct what we do. And there are three main executive functions. One is inhibitory control, which is that self-regulation. I stop myself before I punch somebody in the nose when I get mad. At least I hope I do. (laughs) And so that's that's one, and that's the one that's closest to that self-regulation. Another one is called working memory. Working memory is how we hold information in our mind while we think about it. So as you're listening or as as, uh, parents, moms and parents who are listening to this are thinking about this, how does this relate to my child? That's happening in working memory. That is our conscious processing. And it has limited capacity. And so as we know as parents, we don't have an endless ability to do gazillion things at one time, although we would like to do that very much. And sometimes we feel like we have to, but we can't really, we can't really do that. We have to, we can quickly go back and forth between things. So when you're cooking dinner and you're watching the kids. You're going, your mind is going back and forth, but you can't really do both of those completely at the same time. And then the last one is called cognitive flexibility. And cognitive flexibility is when you can change your mind when you learn something new or when something different happens. 
the pandemic has required cognitive flexibility for parents and for kids. Um, not always very comfortable because we had to get way used to way, new ways of doing things. And, you know, some people adjust better than others. Some people can see things from multiple perspectives. So those are some of the things that are cognitive skills. And why they're so important is that we use these in everything we do, whether it's learning to read, whether it's getting along with our family and friends, whether it's doing math, whether it's on the sports field, you know, the ability to see, I was talking about soccer, being able to see everything on the field and where things are. When kids first start to play soccer, they'd move around in little bunches of grapes, like everybody wants to follow the ball. (laughs) But when we get, when we learn more, we get more sophisticated, we understand our role and where we belong on that space as part of that team those are also ways that we process that visual spatial information. Fascinating. Man, there's so much going on in our brains. Uh, I don't know about my my neuroplasticity, though. I feel like I need to exercise my brain a little bit more because it's feeling a little rigid sometimes. <laughs> I feel like my kids maybe steal some of those brain cells of mine, but I'm getting better. I'm getting better, Betsy. But are there are there ways that we can help our children build and strengthen those cognitive skills? Yes. So everything that we do, every experience that we have physically changes our brains. So after this conversation, your brain is going to be physically different than it was before. And everything that we do as parents. Now, don't get paranoid and crazy about it because obviously you do a lot of good things just by being a good a good parent. But giving our children lots of different types of experiences different ways to work with information. So all of those art projects or sports things or all of those are really good ways to develop cognitive skills. And don't push, it's not about pushing academics. So the, so for example, when we think about inhibitory control, because I talked about that's self-regulation. One of the most important things you can do for kids when they're young to to start to develop inhibitory control is role play, is is give them costumes, let them dress up, let them be firemen and ballerinas and waitresses and whatever it is that they want to act out. And the reason that that's so helpful is that when they put themselves in a role, they have to react to the other person, what the other person says in character, in that role, which requires them to stop themselves from saying what they would normally say and say things. And we probably, we never thought about that. And we just think, oh, they're just, you know, being silly and whatever, and it's sort of fun and creative, but it's really, children's job is play. And through play, that's how they develop a lot of these skills. So blocks and help develop visual spatial skills. Physical activity actually is also really important to develop um, our sense of where we are in space and our ability to interact and see where things are. You can do things like, you know, auditory skills. Go out, probably not right now, at least not in Chicago where there's snow all over the ground, but in the summer you can go and you know, sit in the backyard or sit on a bench in the park with your child and just close your eyes. And what do you hear? 
What does that sound like? Does that sound like the same as the other bird that we heard? All of those kinds, just exploring our world. And kids do this just, they love, I mean, they, they just, that's what they do. They're all, and they will ask you a million questions and you don't have to know the answers. It's okay. You know, I don't know. I wonder why that is. Maybe we can go learn some more about that. So uh, you don't have to be able to answer all the questions. You just have to be really enthusiastic about entertaining them and being curious yourself. I love that. And I think that's the biggest thing is just join them in their curiosity um, yourself. Because once you make it less about, oh, I need to entertain my kids and play with them. And oh my gosh, it's, I thought I was playing for 30 minutes and it's only been three. Um, <laughs> it can, it can be a little tough, but when you're just like, Hey, I'm curious about this. You're curious about that. Let's learn something together and do this and have some fun. So that's really cool. I love that. We also sometimes feel as parents, like we have to control too many things. Mm-hmm. So I have to come up with the game. Mm-hmm. You know what? Kids can come up with games. Let's, you know, we have a, let's say we have a bunch of dominoes and we're going to come up with our own game. When, when I was a kid, my brother and sister and I used to line up the dominoes and stand them up at mm-hmm. two ends of the living room and then throw, not throw, but roll marbles to see if we could knock them down. <laughs> and we had, all these, we had all these rules about it. You know, you could do it this way, but not... And when you help kids define those rules, they're thinking about all those things like, well, this is a three-point shot versus a two-point shot. This is a, this is fair, this isn't fair. And, and there's no reason that they can't come up with their own rules for games. And that makes them a lot more fun and is actually more beneficial for them to do that. And then you don't have to come up with all those rules and all those games. Less pressure. I'm a fan of that. (laughs) Betsy, what are the first signs a parent may see if their child learns differently? Maybe in the future they find out their child is dyslexic or other learning differences. So what are those first signs that we can look for when it comes to our children maybe learning a bit differently? So there are a lot of different things because these cognitive skills are so there's so many different types of ways that we do it. So there's not just one list of things. But if you have children who have difficulty doing things like rhyming, you know, they don't, they don't necessarily hear Matt, bat, cat. I can't do that wordplay. And again, there's no strict, you know, timeline for developing that. But if they're getting towards, you know, first grade and, and that's not something that they do, that would be that would be a cue. Things that just, you know, when they get frustrated with, with tasks where they have to learn them or not being able to remember information. The typical kind of thing with uh, working memory is if you ask a child to do a few things. So I'd like you to go upstairs and get your sweater and uh, come back down and, you know, take the garbage out and then um, make sure you have your spelling list so we can practice the words in the car. Now, two and three-year-olds, of course, are not going to remember that. Four or five probably not going to remember that. Uh, but if you're if you're getting towards that second, third grade, and you find that, and and what it looks like typically is that the child will go and do that first thing on the list. They'll go up and get that sweater, and then they will get just either. It seems like they're getting distracted, 
like 10 minutes later, where, where are you? Or they just come and look at you like, what was, what was I supposed to do? Like, but it's just gone. It's not that they're trying to be difficult. It's not that they're trying to be oppositional or anything like that. It's simply that their brains don't hold onto that information. Okay. That's, that's helpful. Things for us to kind of just keep in mind. And how can parents begin to understand how their child's brain learns and, and help them achieve their fullest learning potential? So understanding cognitive skills really requires a cognitive assessment to do it uh, fully. But there are some things that you can do at a very basic level that can be really helpful. So for example, on our website, we have something we call a cognitive rating scale. And it's, there are different scales for different ages. There's one from six to eight. There's one from, uh, if you have a four or five-year-old, you could use that scale as well. And basically, it just asks parents to take readily observed behaviors, like can my child color between the lines, or do they remember the details of a story they just heard, things like that. Um, so you can, if you go to mybrainware.com and you just, uh, in the search bar, type rating scale, you'll get there. And it's a really helpful thing to do. It will start to tune you into um, areas. So it looks at various attention skills, memory skills, perceptual processing. That's how we actually process sensory information um, and those kinds of things. So it can be, that's a great way to get started to sort of, and if everything looks good, then then great. If not, you probably want to go and do a more formal cognitive assessment so that you really get at that the ability to compare your child to what would be typically developing and er- and start to pinpoint areas that might be uh, problematic. What a helpful resource. Thank you so much for sharing that with us. I'll make sure to share that in our show notes so that our listeners can, can get that information if that's something that they're interested in for their child. So thank you for sharing that. Um, also, Betsy, I'd love to hear about your five-step plan to help a child who might learn differently. So the, the five-step plan really reflects what we've learned working with families over the years. And so this is when, when they follow these steps, we, they can do amazing things to help their children develop. The first one is pretty simple. It's, we call it take the wheel. And what it means is that most parents have handed over control to the, to the school system. And don't necessarily feel like they have enough expertise or enough knowledge or are simply, you know, well-placed to, uh, to help their child with education. And the fact of the matter is that when we're talking about these cognitive skills and how brains learn, most educators also don't know this information. So when parents learn it, they are often... You know, it's it's because they've gone out to seek this information and not because they're hearing about it from school. You're not going to go to a parent-teacher conference and say, well, I'm, at least in most cases, and say, well, you know, I think your child really has some issues with working memory. You might hear, I think he should be tested for ADHD. That you might hear. And that just because they're wandering around the classroom and can't sit in their chair and, and that kind of thing. 
you already know that, right? Yes, that's, yes. That's, that's <laughs> right. Um, so it's saying, you know what? I, as a parent, can do some things for my child because there's nobody in the world that cares more for them than I do. And, and so it's saying, okay, well, I'm going to be brave. I'm going to take a step out. I'm going to investigate this a little more because I see that, and, and this happened so much during the pandemic when during remote learning is that parents started to see the struggles that their children were having with learning um, that they hadn't heard about from the school. And so, um, so that happens a lot. So the second one is to um, set high standards. So a lot of times when kids struggle with learning, the school's response or the school system's response, and I don't want to, you know, as a former teacher myself, and I know a lot of educators who work really hard and they care a lot. So this is not a condemnation of teachers. What it is is to say the system is not well designed to support this. And so what happens is that when a child struggles, the typical response is to make things easier so that they can be successful. So we might give them accommodations, like we give them more time on a test, or we give them an easier set of spelling words, or we give them fewer math problems. There are a whole bunch of things like this that are typically provided for children. And sometimes parents go and, and seek this out because they know their children need help. But when that happens, it often results in, okay, all we care about is this child making little bits of incremental progress, not whether they get to the point where they can master reading or master levels of math and things like that. So it's just to, to not give up because there are a lot of things that you'll find you can do to help that. And then the third step is to build cognitive infrastructure to help understand how your child learns these cognitive skills and to go and seek out ways to help them build them. We've talked about some of them, but there's another approach, which is called cognitive training. And so it's sort of like physical training. You know, we go to the gym and we work out, we exercise different muscles and muscle groups together and we do cross training and we do all this stuff. We can basically do the same thing for our brains. And so especially for children who have real variable cognitive skills, some that are strong and some that are weaker or who have not developed some of these skills to the level that they need to be effective in a classroom, that they can really be helped to, to grow these skills. The fourth step is to move beyond grit. And what that refers to is that, you know, the word grit gets so much attention these days. You just, kid, you got to have grit. You got to just st stick with it. Don't give up. You know, you know, we, 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 you know, we Spears is never give up, right? right. <laughs> That's not what yeah. we do. You got to, but what that says to a kid who has tried and tried and tried and tried is, and many times they get to the point, maybe your kids have, it's like, I can't do that. I, I can't, I can't do that. I must be stupid. And then you see that, you know, you see that I'm just stupid. You know, I'm just not smart. I just can't do that. And it, so that's what grit tends, you know, the emphasis on grit. And what we need to move to is something that we refer to as a growth mindset. And parents may have heard about this because there's a lot of really good research 
about believing that we can change. So we can change our intelligence. We can change our talents. We're not just gifted with them, you know, before we come into the world and that's all there is. It's We can actually develop them. And actually, that's how they develop. When we talk about someone is naturally gifted, it means that probably that they do have a, a bit of a leg up, but it means also that they've practiced and practiced and practiced and gotten really good at something. So, and you have to, no one is just gifted. You still have to learn. You still have to do all those things. So that's the, that, and the, the last one is to have a coach and to, to realize that just like everything else, else in life, you know, we can have a mentor, we can seek out expertise, we can get support. And when it comes to developing skills, having someone who understands these skills and can support you in doing it can be really beneficial and really help you achieve results much more quickly than you could just doing trial and error. Like it's like I tried to make meatloaf the first time it was not a success, <laughs> but I so I called my mother said, I don't know why I didn't do that beforehand, but it's like, Oh, all right. That's how you do it. Now. Never had a problem again. (laughs) (laughs) And that's so true. I think that goes with like anything in parenting. You know, you don't have to go through this alone. If you're struggling with something, reach out to someone and and get the support that you need and, and someone who specializes in that so you can avoid going through any errors and just get the help that you and your child deserve. So I, that, those five steps were amazing. Thank you so much for sharing those. That was awesome. Um, we've talked a little bit about this, Betsy. Like Most schools don't address how students learn, especially if they learn differently. How can we overcome this and help our children learn to the best of their ability when we see that the school isn't adjusting to how our child learns best? Like you said before, a lot of times it's about making things easier, slowing things down, but how can we then help them learn better when they're in a school setting? So I think a big part of that is starting to change the conversations that we have about learning. And it's hard to do in the typical parent-teacher conference, which is usually 10 or 15 minutes. And you're, you're, you're there with the teacher and you're trying so hard to listen. And there the, there's that whole line of other parents sitting outside, you know, and the teacher is trying to get through it. So you may have to schedule a different kind of a, an appointment to, to do that. And it's thinking and then asking questions about asking the question why a lot and asking the question, what can we do? And making it about not what can I just, what can I do as a parent or what can you do as the teacher? Because then that tends to set up a little bit of we, they, and you always want to approach your child's teacher as this is a team effort. So I often say, I'm so glad to be on team Joey what can we do as team Joey or as team Susie or a team uh, Raul or whatever the the child's name is. And then to say, so my child is struggling with this and why could that be? Because most of the time there's an underlying cognitive reason that that thing is a struggle. And, and teachers when they start to understand that, then this makes so much sense to them because 
they know how hard they work, you know, and, and I know how hard I worked, but if it's, if it's not something that you're thinking about, but you can start to prompt that. So for example, if your child has difficulty remembering certain kinds of information, maybe they don't remember their vocabulary words. And a typical teacher's assignment to learn new vocabulary is write the word, write the word in the, sen- in the definition of the word, and then write the word in a sentence. Okay. You probably had that kind of assignment. Yes, I remember this. <laughs> <laughs> All right. So if you have strong verbal memory, strong memory for information or for language-based information, that's great. You're going to do really well. But if you have a child who's got stronger verbal, uh, visual memory skills, so they don't necessarily hold on to language-based information, what they see or what they hear or what what they read, but instead they remember images and pictures and diagrams and models and all that kind of thing, that's how they learn. And so asking them to do that assignment is just excruciating. You know, what we, so what we want to do is to say, I wonder if it would help Joey or Susie or whoever it is, if we, instead of doing that way of trying to learn, why don't we have them use a picture and flashcards and associate the picture with it? And if that is effective, which it will probably be a little bit more effective if it's especially if it's a visual learner then you start to get in but but starting to actually explore that with a teacher that's the kind of thing that I think is going to help change it and to to emphasize that you understand that there very well could be cognitive weaknesses and cognitive strengths one of the things that schools often do is focus only on what kids can't do so he can't spell or, you know, his IE words. He can't do his IE. So we're just going to throw IE words at him until he's, the, you know, kingdom come. Well, what we're not doing during that time is letting them use their strengths because that's what they're going to rely on. You know, if they have a particular talent for being able to um, see patterns and um, build things and do visual spatial, giving them lots of opportunities in authentic learning situations to use that, giving them the ability to practice that and to strengthen it. And that's the other thing that I would be emphasizing in those parent convers- parent-teacher conversations. I think that is so spot on, Betsy, because... I think that that for parents, we need to pay attention to what our children enjoy and what their strengths are and bring that to their learning experience. Because you're right, when you were giving that whole example about vocabulary, I used to do terribly in those tests um, <laughs> because I didn't learn that way. How I learned, I actually have a photographic memory. So I would remember what the words said in the picture in my head. And that's how I got things right. I wouldn't try to apply it in using it in real life. I would just remember these pictures and that's how I remembered and started. But I didn't learn that until I was older. Of course, when I was in elementary school, I was like, I can't, I'm not as strong in this. And I think parents don't know where to start, but that's a great place to start. Pay attention to what they are good at and figure out, is there a way that we can use those strengths in the classroom. So that is such a beautiful tip. Thank you for sharing that. 
if nothing else, if parents don't take anything else away from this conversation other than that, is to, to focus on what their kids do well and give them lots of opportunities to explore that. And so, you know, you may find kids who like are able, you know, the kids who take things apart and put things back together. And these visual skills, especially visual spatial, is not something that gets overlooked a lot in school because school is so language based. It's all about reading. It's all about words. It's all about, you know, everything is I'm going to tell you how to do something. I'm going to talk to you. I'm going to talk to you all day long. (laughs) And and kids, the only one who's learning when the teacher is talking is the teacher. Right. That's <laughs> yeah, so true. So until so give your kids the opportunity. Don't you don't need to explain things to them. In fact, here's another great way that um, parents can reinforce their children's learning, which is to whatever it is they're learning, you know, so they're studying cells in a plant or something. And you say, do plants have cells? See, this is the fun part of being a parent. You can be so dumb. You can pretend you just don't know anything. Really? Why don't you tell me about that? Is there a, you know, so when they're explaining and they're teaching, that's how we truly understand things. Uh, but you can do it in a way that's very natural and a lot of fun. So I'm not quizzing you. As a neuroeducator, we refer to this as retrieval practice. So the more we have to retrieve information, we remember it actively, bring it up in our minds, the stronger those connections get, the more we're likely to be able to do that. So we can say, okay, I'm going to give you a quiz. Well, no kid wants a quiz at school or at home or anywhere else. So we, we just, we call it something else. We call it retrieval practice. We're going to get better at retrieving this information by practicing. And you can do that just by having a conversation. Yeah. And getting curious and acting dumb. Granddaughters all the time. All right. I bet. I can only imagine. <laughs> Grandma, did you know this? No, honey. <laughs> <laughs> Why don't you tell, tell me? Oh, yeah. really? Why do you think that happened? You know, those those W words, who, what, when, where, why can be exactly. really helpful. I love it. I love it. And Betsy, I was actually just kind of blown away by the statistic that 70% of students are performing below grade level proficiency. And why? I mean, is it from everything that we've talked about that, you know, the school systems are really just focusing on language and one way of teaching? Or is there something else? Why do you believe that 70% of students are performing below grade level? So I think it's really almost exactly what you said, which is that this has been the case for decades now. And I don't think that most parents know it, you know, and I think if they really understood it and the implications, um, they would <laughs> they wouldn't be very happy. They'd be, you know, protesting this along with whatever else they're not happy with in their community or their life or whatever. Um, And it's the populations that have, that are the farthest behind are, are children who have, are in special education. So it's by definition, we know that those kids are learning differently. It's children who have grown up in poverty. Not that every child that grows up in poverty is lagging behind, 
but many of them are on average. And poverty has a big impact on cognitive development. It's, and then English language learners are the other big group. And, you know, then that's about their cognitive aspects of that too. And so, and about how they learn and about how they're supported. So I think that we do believe, um, and in fact, there's, there's research that suggests this. There's an organization called the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. And it's an international organization, like a big think tank that does research. And it's um, supported by the developing nations around the world. And it does research on a variety of things. And it did some research once that's on um, the connection between economics and education. And they, what they concluded is that if we could get U.S. students, the students in America, to perform at the minimum proficiency level on these tests, we would be able to increase our, our country's economy by $72 trillion. And the economy at the time was only about, yes, it's just mind-boggling. But you think about it. You think about, you know, the kinds of skills that you need to have in the workplace today. You need to be able to learn. We don't know what our kids' jobs, are. my grandchildren's jobs are going to be when they grow up because the world is changing too fast. They have to, they're going to have to learn those jobs. And they're going to have to relearn those jobs. And they're going to have to think and adjust and be flexible. And they're going to have, so all of these, the cognitive skills and the ability to learn are things that are going to be essential for them uh, when they, when they get to that, you know, even now, you know, to be successful in school. So it's becoming even more important. And, and I, I hope that the system, I think the system, many in the system are tired of doing the same things and seeing them not work. Um, so I, you know, we always, we always hope, um, and every parent has the ability to make that choice for their own child. So I, I've talked to many educators and I feel like a lot of educators say these same things like, oh, I hope this system changes. And I just feel like it's, people have been saying that for a while. What can we do to make that change happen? You know, if I knew the answer to that. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> Oh man, um, you know I don't know physically how to to go about changing the system. It, it's it's like any big institution. It's really hard. It's just really hard, you know. But so is being a parent. Being a parent is hard. So I think it's may, having parents choose to learn more about this, to understand how their children learn, to take this back to the system with them. People vote with their feet. People vote with their um, their actions and with their dollar. Uh, if there are enough uh, parents asking these questions, because teachers do care. People go into the business of education not to make a lot of money, because they really care and they want to help. And when they learn that there is a different way to help, then they're often very responsive. Mm -hmm. That makes total sense. And yes, I think, yes, just speaking up, being your your child's advocate, I think is the first place, um, as you said. So yeah, I just wanted to get your your input on that. And 
Betsy, you have said, I love how you say this, that we put too much emphasis on teaching and not enough emphasis on learning. Can you talk to us more about this concept? Sure. So we send our kids to school and, and we assume that they're going to learn, right? It's, isn't school supposed to be about learning, right? But what happens when you get into the school and the perspective of the teacher is that they, most of the focus for them is on how they teach. And there are books and books and books, volumes and volumes, tons of research of evidence-based strategies, you know, that is research-based, you know, children learn, or, you know, children learn better, they do better if you do this, if you do that. But the focus is really on doing those things. It's on providing instruction. It's interesting, I'm actually doing a presentation in a couple of weeks where I was looking up the definition of teaching online and most of them had things like to instruct, to give information, to provide, which means all I have to do to teach is to tell you teaching is about instruction. Okay. Now, what is your understanding? If you, if you can't explain that or it has no meaning to you, you haven't learned anything. So the, all that matters, and what I tell parents over and over again, all that matters is learning. And if learning isn't happening, it does not matter how much teaching went on. And, t- and teachers fa- fall into this. I, I did myself when I was a young teacher. I told them that yesterday. We covered that yesterday. But here We covered it, okay? That doesn't mean that anybody learned it. And if they yeah. can't learn it and come back with it, then it has no... It was just wasting a lot of time uh, being able to do that. So learning, and then the, the definition of learning, and there are lots of ways to define learning, uh, but, but one of the definitions of teaching was to cause to somebody to learn, which is a very different framework from just spouting or providing the information. When you cause somebody to learn, you have to understand how learning happens. So really basic things like, so when, when learning happens, we make connections in our brains and we have to connect it to, to create meaning. We don't learn meaningless information. So if I'm going to tell you that I'm going to, t- you need to, it's really important uh, for you to learn about jibber jawaks. Okay. So I'm, I'm going to tell you all about jibber jawaks. So, and then if I came back tomorrow and I hadn't told you, you had no idea what jibber jawaks were and I'm telling you all this stuff about them. And I asked you, you're not going to be able to remember anything, except maybe if you write it down because you've got that photographic memory. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> but the fact of the matter is, it has no it has no meaning. We don't we don't learn meaningless stuff. Now, if I told you that the jibber jawak was the way to unlock your car when you leave the keys in it, all of a sudden it becomes really important to you, right? And you know if you ever lock your key. Not that you can do that anymore because there's so many protection systems, but if it's vital, if it's, it's something that is going to help you accomplish your goal or that's really important in your life, then you're going to going to learn what it is. And so we just if you if we always approach it from that point of view and from why this is relevant, and this is hard to do as a parent too. We have a tendency, you know, when our kids say why, 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 why. 
at some point we'd get to the point where we say, because I told you so, right? And put that, I have said that myself, and sometimes I might even get to that point because there's only so much time you have about <laughs> why you have to, uh, you know, wear shoes to go into the restaurant. <laughs> you know, you may not have time to do that long dissertation. But kids are asking why because they want to know why, because it matters to them. And when they understand why, when you can answer those, when it's relevant to them and it has meaning to them, then they'll learn it. Then they'll learn it. I agree. So just teaching, explaining well, but giving them a reason for them to learn, for, to know it. I love it. Oh, wow, Betsy. Gosh, you've given us so much information and I just love this. And to wrap up our episode, do you have any final thoughts or advice for our listeners that you want them to take away after listening to this show? Well, I would say, I would, I think taking away the, the hope and the promise that your child has something very special inside him or her. Um, we all have strengths. We all have genius. We all have special things. And it doesn't, it may not show up in the everyday stuff that they do at school. It may not show up in, in athletics or it may not show up in something that it's your thing. But it'll show up and just keep keep looking for it, find ways to help do it, engage in those conversations, be open, explore, and just have fun. I mean, being a parent is like the best. It's probably my children, raising my children uh, has had more of an impact and probably on me than anything else I've done in my life. And it's just um, it's a wonderful, amazing thing and can be frustrating at times. But um, have in mind that image of your child being just incredibly successful at whatever it may be, because they, they can and they will with your support. Oh, that's beautiful. Thank you for that. And Betsy, where can our listeners find you? Well, they can find us at mybrainware.com. So it's my as an M-Y brainware. W-A-R-E. So you have, it's like you have software and you have hardware and you have brainware. Oh, I like it. Remember it. <laughs> uh, and there's a lot of resources on our website um, that are free. There are a lot of webinars and just information, those rating scales that I mentioned. So there's a lot of information and that is um, that can help parents a lot. Very cool. Oh, gosh, this was so helpful and informative. Betsy, thank you so much again for your time and for sharing your knowledge with all of us. Oh, it's been my pleasure. It was great to speak with you. Oh, absolutely. And for our listeners out there to learn more about Betsy and her work, as she said, you can visit her online at mybrainware.com or on Facebook at Brainware Learning. Our team will be posting today's episode on our Baby Chick Facebook page. So if you have any questions or comments about our discussion, please share them with us in the comment section. And as always, if you haven't already, please subscribe to Chick Chat, the Baby Chick podcast, wherever you listen to podcasts and leave us an honest review. Cheers to helping your children learn in a way that works for them.